Spot, the place where we answer your money questions. I'm your host, Heather Katonga Woodward, and in this week's episode, Fifi asks a question about how to manage your money if you're self-employed and have income flows that fluctuate very highly from month to month. Now, before you hear her question and my response to it, it's worth pointing out that financially, I'm quite conservative and I have become more conservative over the years, especially since I had children. And I think you naturally become a little bit more conservative as you get older and you want to see your pension pot growing and your savings growing. So listen to it with that context in mind, because the way I feel about the whole situation could be completely different if you're more risk loving, if you're excited by risk and hope and security doesn't matter that much to you. Enjoy. Hey, Heather. I was wondering if this is something you could cover on your podcast. Um, I've been a little overwhelmed listening to financial podcasts lately because I feel like they often come from the standpoint of or the perspective of someone who has a consistent and decent income. So it's all about saving money and investing. But even before the pandemic happened, I was laid off from my job. And so I wasn't really in a place where I had any extra money. It was more so about survival and still hardly having enough to even do that. And so I wondered if there might be a way for you to cover money-making tips um, from different perspectives, you know, someone who needs to make extra money and then also maybe someone who needs to survive after a layoff because it, it feels difficult to listen to a lot of these money-making podcasts, not just yours, because so many of them are not really addressing, like, what do you do when you don't have enough? It's one thing if you have, let's say, 12000 coming in and you can live off of 6000 then great. Like, that's great that you have extra. Or, you know, you have 6000 coming in and you need to be able to, you know, live even below that. But when it's very inconsistent and you're still looking for work, how do you survive and how do you, you know, make sure you you have the least negative impact on your credit score and your financial uh, well-being, well-being, you know, for the future. So if that's something you can cover, I would love it. I've been meaning to ask you. Awesome, awesome question. And it's one that I've actually wanted to talk about for a while. So thank you for asking it. Part of my response will be practical and logical. But part of my response will be emotional because I was self-employed for almost six years and this was something that I wrestled with and I was that portion of the self-employed populace that was also earning just enough to live if that and I'll give you some practical tips split into three categories firstly expenses and cutting back there then on managing unstable income flows and what you might be able to do there. And then finally, on when to call it quits, because I reached that stage and I'm going to give you exactly the list of considerations I had down on paper that made me decide I am walking away from this. So let's start off with the first bit, expenses. Before I embarked on self-employment, I was lucky enough to have planned it So I had set aside £60,000 and the first few months I made very little from being self-employed. 
So I was running down my savings. One thing that I did was look at everything that I spend and cut it back to bare bones. But one of the cushions that I had as a self-employed person is that I was partnered with, I was married to a husband with a stable job. So he covered our living expenses. So my business really only needed to be able to cover business expenses, which I recognize was a complete luxury. You might be able to cut back on expenses by sharing expenses with friends, where you can share resources, even like software with someone that can half or cut your cost in, in a third or a quarter. There's tons of software you, you need to use when you're self-employed and your business is based online. And if you can talk to your friends and say, hey, do you want to share this? Do you want to do you want to share logins? I don't know if it's allowed in the terms and conditions you'd have to check. But if you can pull resources, workspaces, you can cut expenses there. Then on rental, which is probably going to be your biggest expense, you can either live with relatives or at home, in which case you'd pay probably mates rates type of rent, or you can live with other people in either a shared space where you're all entrepreneurs running your own business. So I'm not sure if it's there, but I bet you can find houses where you have like five people, all self-employed, each one has their own bathroom, but they have this large living room, which is their shared collaborative uh, space where they share ideas and just bounce things off of each other, that kind of thing. There is going to be a level of expenses beyond which you can't cut. And that's when you need to start looking at income. So I'll move on to income and here's where we need to have a bit of a reality check. All of us go into business wanting to do really well and expecting that we will, especially if you have been successful at school, you think there's nothing to stop you succeeding, making millions, you know. But the thing about business is that it's not really like that. It's pretty much a lottery. Your classroom intelligence has nothing to do with whether you'll be successful or not. There are things obviously you can do to increase your chances of success, being consistent, just producing more content, etc. And in order to be able to save, you have to be in a position where although your income is volatile, volatile, I don't know how Americans say it, there is a portion of income coming in every month that is uncommitted to business expenses and it takes a while to get there if you do decide to stick to it some people get there in two years some five some ten years some never get there so if you figure out that the minimum amount you need to spend every month on business and on yourself is 2500 and you get to a place where your business is consistently producing at least 3000 then there's a 500 there that you can siphon off into saving or investing. But if it's 2,500 you need just to survive and what you get in consistently is 2,000, you're not going to be able to save. That's the reality of it. I'm going to read you a few statistics on self-employment income. Okay, so these are American statistics 
and they're a little bit dated, but I don't think the stats will have changed that much. I think these are from about 2012, but I got it from a website called startupsafter50.com, which was basically catering to people who are starting something new, a business, when they have already been in a career for a long time. I dare say that's probably a luxury in itself because if you're starting something, a business in your 50s, hopefully you have about 30 years of saving or close to right there. Anyway, this subparagraph, and I will include it in the show notes, uh, is entitled A Reality Check. According to IRS records, these are tax records in the U.S., about 23 million sole proprietorships file income tax returns each year. Roughly 5% of these businesses are structured as single-member limited liability companies. The rest are purely sole proprietorships. They have no encompassing legal structure to limit their liability. In this universe of 23 million businesses, fewer than 11% have annual receipts of 100,000 or more. So less than 2.3 million of 23 million, or or let's say just over 2.3 million, have only got annual receipts of 100,000 or more. This basically means there are 20 million businesses out there making less than 100K. And that's gross revenue, not net income. And net income is usually roughly 20% of gross, 20 to 25%. For most sole proprietors, therefore, Owning a business is hardly a fast track to fabulous wealth. In fact, when we look at sole proprietorships as a whole, almost 70% have an annual gross income of less than $25,000. Which means the profit, if you're taking that 20 to 25% figure as an average, is 5 to 8K. An amazing 15.5 million businesses fall in this category with average gross revenue of slightly more than 7000 so I was roughly correct, $7,000. And this is based on IRS statistics released in 2012. Why such a meager average? Because these businesses are predominantly seasonal or part-time in nature. They serve primarily to provide limited supplemental income for households. Commonly, they bring in no more than a few hundred or a few thousand dollars each year, and a substantial portion of these businesses report either a loss or no net income at all. Why am I telling you these statistics? If I had seen these stats when I launched into business, I might have been more balanced in my expectations of what I'm going to earn. I was full-time. I wasn't part-time. So my expectations should have been that I, I would get more than this. But the reality is, whether you look at the UK or the US, 97% of businesses, and I don't know where I got this 97% stat, but I know I got it somewhere, are basically earning just enough to live or substantially less. But there is that golden 3% that we're all striving to be. But even if you don't get into the golden 3%, you need to think, how long am I going to keep at it for? Over the period that I've been self-employed, pull out your numbers. I was very bad at keeping track of what's come in and what's going out. But if you've been self-employed for a good amount of time, and I'll describe anything more than two years as a good amount of time, you should be able to lump up what's come in, even if it's been seasonal in nature and what's gone out, and see if there's any wedge of 
flex discretionary income that you would be able to siphon off. My biggest regret from my self-employed years was that I didn't save even a little bit into a pension. Even if I'd put aside, I, I could have afforded to. I, I A, didn't realize the tax benefit. B, I actually underestimated the power of a hundred pounds. So if you can put just a hundred dollars into your pension, it's the habit of doing it that matters rather than the amount. But a hundred dollars is a hundred dollars and it can, it can only grow so much. At the end of the day, I came to the realization that the money that I'm earning as self-employed pales in comparison to what I earn in employment. So I need to make a plan. I need to study towards something that will get me into the type of job that is an enjoyable job, a job that doesn't suck the life joy out of my life. I want to spend time with my kids, etc. Now, I, I know this isn't exactly your question, but I will cover it very quickly anyway. And these were the factors that for me maybe decide I, I actually need to find a job. So when I was self-employed, I never had a holiday because when I went on holiday, I took my laptop and I would be checking my Amazon fulfillment for client queries, even for the, the social media stuff. I had a, a PA that did all my social media stuff for me. So I didn't really need to look at that. But there was a certain level of business that had to be attended to by me. And it didn't matter where I, I was going on holiday. I needed to check stuff. And you know what? I love being employed because when I go on holiday, I can afford to do nothing. I can afford not to check my email or my phone. And my expectation was that self-employment would be more flexible than that, but it turned out not to be. I also didn't really have weekends where I could just do nothing. I felt obliged to, to, to do something, maybe write a blog. And you know what? Some weekends I don't want to do stuff. It is imperative on the self-employed person to structure their time appropriately. And of course, I could have done all my work Monday to Friday. But when you're barely get, getting by, that's a luxury. That's a luxury. You can't just say, I'm not going to work Saturday and Sunday. If the money is not coming in, you have to work weekends. And so I did. I did have free time, but I didn't have as much free time as I expected. So not having the kind of free time that I have in employment, whereby when I leave work, I leave work, kind of bothered me because that was not my expectation going into self-employment. Social media got boring. I know some people love spending all their time on social media. And that's why I ultimately ended up getting a virtual assistant to do basically my tweeting, my Instagram and a little bit of Facebook. I, I like social media when it's not structured, when I'm just checking something here and there. And I want the liberty to just not check social media for a week if I don't want to. And nowadays I do. You might see a flurry of Insta posts from me and then I'll disappear for a week. It doesn't matter. The reason I podcast is because it's a hobby. I, I enjoy podcasting. I enjoy sharing knowledge, thinking about ideas. But because I'm fully employed, I don't have any pressure to earn from podcasting. So that makes it easier and more enjoyable for me to just just share what I know and impart any ideas I've got. I'm sorry if I'm being a bit of a Debbie Downer, but these were my reasons for deciding that, oh, okay, I've tried this for six years and I think it was five years at the point I was making this analysis and I'm sharing it with you in case it's something that might help you think about whether 
you are going to set a time limit for self-employment. So we've covered no holidays, no weekends, no free time. Social media got boring and there was no structure. You structure your own time when you're self-employed. And because I do like structure, I had a calendar on my desk and I still got those calendars whereby I structured every single day in terms of what my top goals were for the day. But you know what? Ultimately, I think I've been totally institutionalized because I love the habit of just knowing what I need to do on my job as an economist slash accountant slash corporate finance person. There is a certain structure to my day, although it's there's lots of ad hoc stuff. Even the ad hoc stuff is quite structured because I know what ad hoc stuff I need to work on. So I don't think I loved that facet of completely zero structure. And when it came to marketing, so if you're trying to boost your income as a self-employed person, you need to understand how to plan your social media. But the social media landscape was constantly changing. The thing that worked this week was not necessarily the thing that would work next week. And there was a plethora of software out there that I could choose from. And it was a bit much for me. I just wanted to pick a formula that works. And I wanted to work for a few years, not a few days or months. So I didn't like that. Then there are other things that are just important for general life that you don't get when you're self-employed. If you're in the US, there's no health insurance. If you're self-employed, you have to plan that for yourself. Whereas if you're in a job, you get it from your job. There are no pension contributions. You have to plan for those yourself. And as I've already mentioned, that was my biggest regret myself for not contributing to a private pension during my period of self-employment, no matter how minimal the contribution would have been. I also didn't go on shopping sprees. Not that I go on huge shopping sprees now, but every year I usually set aside a thousand pounds to go on a, a little shopping spree. And when I was self-employed and not earning too much and wanting to plow back whatever came in into the business, I stopped the shopping spree. I didn't go shopping probably for the whole of the six or seven years that I was self-employed, except when I needed to get a particular item of wear. Fifi, you are my friend. You don't strike me as the type of person that's into shopping sprees, but I think I'm using shopping sprees as symbolic of having disposable income that does not have to be so planned for. You know the deal. When you're self-employed, you have to know what money you're going to have to spend on your business. And if that income is not exactly stable, you don't want to risk it by doing frivolous things like shopping. How very frivolous. And ultimately, although there is no real security in anything, and people often talk about employment as not being secure, self-employment is the ultimate insecurity because of the ups and downs of income. And I wanted my children to have a paid for education. And I knew the only way we we're going to be able to do that is if I had stable income. And that's, I think that was the ultimate thing that made me go back to work. Oh, and, and there were lots of other things, small things and big things. Getting a mortgage deal when you're self-employed in Britain is nigh on impossible. They are a lot stricter if you don't show them those healthy pay stubs. So in summary, if, you feel as though self-employment is taking more from you than you're willing to give. If 
you're not living the lifestyle that you want and deserve. If you're looking forward to the age of 50 and at that point in time, your pension pot or however you've allocated your savings wouldn't be a number that you're happy with, then you have to decide at what point you'll you'll look for general employment. I had a friend who was telling me how much she hates her job recently. And I sat down and said to her, what do you hate about your job? She works in a lab. And she was like, oh, I, f I just find my work so busy. And with coronavirus, it's gotten even more busy. I was like, okay. So it sounds like you don't enjoy your specific job. Because the thing you want to leave your job for, which she wanted to go into property and manage property for HMOs, which are high multiple occupancy properties, very stressful, high turnover, didn't sound like a strategy for relaxation. So after we talked, we realized that it was just the nature of her job. She wants a job that's a little bit more desk-based, not lab-based, a little bit more relaxed, less pressure, a little more balance between her life and work. And those jobs are available. I've been working from home since March due to the coronavirus. This has resulted in me kind of needing to structure my own day. Whereas I used to show up at work at 7.30 every day, except Friday when I worked from home, 7.30 to 3.30. Now I'm able to sort of distribute my work over a little bit longer period of the day. And I start my day with walks, etc. It feels as though the life that I'm living in employment now is the sort of life people expect to live self-employed, which to me makes me question, oh, why would I want to be self-employed when I have the security of my job? And I am, I am a government worker, so there's, there is some degree of security there. Anyway, I, I think I've gone well off piste. I think the main point I wanted to draw out is to what extent can you limit your expenses and still keep the business growing? Um, to what extent can you collaborate with people to cut expenses? And I bet you're doing everything to increase your income, but you need to see whether there's a little bit of a wedge between the average amount of income coming in and the expenses that you have in order to live, in order to keep your business going and, and save what you can. And try to put it into savings where you won't be tempted to spend. So pension savings. In England, you can't take pensions out until you're 55. You can't borrow from pension uh, savings. I know in the US you can borrow from pension savings, but there is a penalty you pay. And there's a bit of a more of a rigmarole to have access to that money. Finally, there are two questions I haven't answered. The first is, how do you maintain a good credit score? Maintaining a good credit score is all about paying your bills on time, making sure you don't miss a payment, and making sure that you don't get too close to your credit limit. So if you've got credit cards, you've got a limit of 5,000, it's good to keep a good amount of headroom. And I've got an episode dedicated to maintaining a good credit score, and that's episode number five on how can I improve my credit score so I can buy a house. Lots of transferable knowledge from that. So from an income perspective, you don't need to worry about your credit score. Just make sure you pay all your bills on time. Um, and if you've got a credit card, if you paid off monthly, that's fantastic. The second thing that you asked, which is how do I 
increase my revenue. I think that's a whole topic on its own. But with, with regards to managing finances with highly fluctuating income, if you're on a low month, the things you can do to increase your income are things like writing. If you can find writing gigs on Upwork.com, and in your particular case, I know you're a really good writer, that might help to boost your income. But sometimes you might need to take a step back and think about, is the work that I'm doing to produce revenue the legacy that I want to leave in terms of the product or what I produced in this world? So I feel like the revenue element is a sort of bigger picture question with regards to what your business is, what you want your business to achieve. And you need to sort of narrow in on revenue related to this legacy that you want to leave. And if you reach a point where you think that this thing you're pushing at is not creating the revenue you wanted to create, you might need to go out and look at other people that are doing things similar and figuring out how are they bringing in revenue. It, I mean, even with things like blogging, I don't make any money from blogging. And I, I guess I haven't made a plan to, but if I wanted to, I would need to really look closely at how are other people making money from blogging? How much content are they producing per day? What tools are they using for their advertising? Are they just using Google ads or something more specialist that brings them in higher revenue? Is the money coming from ads or is it coming from products that they sell? So I know it's so hard if I, I know you've got a podcast to figure out how people are making their money, but the more you delve into that, the clearer it'll become to you what you need to do to increase your revenue streams. I hope that was helpful. I, I'm really wishing you the best. You're like one of my favorite people, Fifi. And if you want to take this offline to talk about the strategies you can use, I'd love to do that. Best of luck. And I completely understand how hard it probably is to listen to all these podcasts, which are generally targeted to people that have a stable income. And the reason they're structured like that is that it's it's difficult to sort of speak to an audience that doesn't have either a stable income from a job or a business producing at least a given amount of income such that you can pull out in some money to save and to invest. I don't know if this was useful, but I certainly hope it was. I'll speak to you soon. Enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to ask me a personal finance question, please type themoneyspot.co.uk into your address bar and you'll be redirected to the exact page on my website where you can ask a question. There are three things I would love you to do. Why don't you have a look at my eBooks or courses? My property course is the top rated UK course on Udemy for people who want to begin to invest in property. My notes to debt freedom give you an A to Z guide on how you can go from debt to zero debt. And finally, my workbook B-School for money-wise, wealth-bound kids will be a fun book that you and your kid can go through together to start teaching them all the common sense things they need to know about money so that they never ever struggle with debt. The second thing I'd love you to do is to please rate me five star on Apple Podcasts And if I don't yet deserve your five star, 
please send me a message and let me know how I can earn your five-star rating. And finally, if you're just loving what you're hearing and the value I'm putting out there, look into the show notes and buy your girl a coffee. Thank you. Have a great day. They said it would